Let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 3. John chapter 3 will be in verses 11 through 21 this afternoon. As you probably see on your handout there, the title of this sermon is very simply, The Son, S-O-N, The Son from Heaven. We've already spoken this morning in the sermon from Luke 2 about the great condescension of our Lord becoming flesh and not even coming in human terms in majesty and splendor, but coming in humility, meekness, lowliness. And I thought John chapter 3 is one of um, is is one of those pinnacle texts about uh, about the Son of God coming down as our Savior. In the Gospel of John, <clears throat> at this point, this is in the the context of a uh, of a nighttime discussion between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a ruler of the Jews. He is a teacher of Israel, as Jesus calls him. He is part of the Sanhedrin, the the ruling elders of Israel, uh, the Supreme Court, if you will, in religious affairs in Israel at the time. So he is one of the elite people who, who should know the Old Testament law and should lead the people of Israel in the right understanding and application of it. He knows there's something special about Jesus. He tells Jesus as much. But he comes to him at night, uh, seeming to fit in with the few times we see Nicodemus in the book of John. He he is, for a long time, um, not wanting to be very public in his interest in Jesus and his affection for Jesus. He knows that most of the rulers of the Jews want Jesus dead. <laughs> um, but he seeks him out by night. And we have this, this famous discussion that was Jesus introduces of the new birth. That what Nicodemus really needs to understand is the absolute necessity of God's miraculous intervention in a person's life uh, called the new birth. Without being born again, a person cannot even see, let alone enter the kingdom of God. Uh, I want to read those verses, verses 1 through 10, just as background here, where Jesus declares the necessity of a new birth. I know I haven't gotten to my main point yet, but we need the context first. Verse 1, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, uh, referring to the prophet Ezekiel, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind, which is um, a, a tightly connected concept to the Spirit, 
The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Or you might understand that as something like, uh, I still don't understand how this works, this new birth you're talking about. Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? That brings us to our sermon text, starting in verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The big idea is pretty simple. Jesus is God's Son come down from heaven in whom we must believe. Jesus is intentionally drawing all the attention and the emphasis to his own person for Nicodemus. You say, I'm, I'm a teacher come from God. You say, I'm a good teacher. You still don't get who I am. And that's your problem. Not only is it your problem that you don't understand how even the prophets, like Ezekiel, said that in order to truly redeem his people, God would have to make a covenant with them that actually changed their hearts, changed them from the inside out, would wash them with water from all their filthiness and idols, and give them his spirit to indwell them. <laughs> Being born of water and the spirit. But not only was that a problem, that the very teacher of Israel did not understand the new birth, but he was trying to say good things about Jesus without really dealing with Jesus' true identity. But the big idea is that Jesus is God's Son come down from heaven in whom we must believe. Laying this out, I have two points that you see broken down there in the handout. First of all, verses 11 through 13, I'm sorry, verses 11 through 17. You must believe what Jesus says about himself. You say Jesus is a good teacher. A teacher come from God. No one could do the miracles, the, the works he does, unless God is with him. Well, have you really understood what Jesus says about himself? And have you believed that? So, th there, are, there are under that three implied commands, you might say, in verses 11 through 17. What you have to believe about Jesus, what Jesus is saying about himself. 
First of all, verses 11 through 13, believe in Jesus as the Son of Man from heaven. The Son of Man from heaven. That's who Jesus is. He's the Son of Man from heaven. Verse 11, Jesus says, truly, truly, that, that wording that, that emphasizes the solemnity of what he's about to say. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you, plural, um, Greek has a way of making words like this, either singular or plural, so you know uh, which one it is. And Jesus here is not just addressing Nicodemus individually, but he's talking to him as the representative of the Jewish leadership. <laughs> the Jewish teachers of the law, you, you, y'all, if you're in the South, you, you people do not receive our testimony. And in verse 12, all the yous are plural there as well. If I have told you people earthly things and you people do not believe, how can you people believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. Remember, verse 2, Nicodemus had spoken for this larger group of Jewish scholars and teachers when he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now Jesus responds with his own we statement. Nicodemus says, we know some, some good things about you. Jesus responds by saying, the teachers of Israel did not know what they should have known. But Jesus, on the other hand, knows that of which he speaks. And it's their guilt that they don't believe his testimony because he is the son of man of Daniel 7, whom the ancient of days has chosen to inherit all things. He's the Messiah. And he's not only a man, but he's the very word of God, the only begotten son of God come down from heaven. And when Jesus says, I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, seems like he's talking about um, the new birth. Though it is a birth from heaven, um, he, he's talking about things as they relate to our man's situation in the world and, his, and how, how we are born into this world incapable of even seeing the kingdom of God. Jesus starts with those fundamental concepts and the Jewish people don't, the Jewish leaders don't believe that when he says it. So if I tell you of earthly things and you don't believe, how am I going to open up to you the, the great mysteries of uh, the great heavenly mysteries that are beyond that, that basic stuff? And again, um, he's, when he says, again, the Greek is very specific, and you people, present tense, do not believe. I've told you the things you do not believe. This is their regular habit. This is their, this is what they do. Jesus tells them things, they don't believe it. Now it might sound strange to us, verse 13, he says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Um, well, realize, in, in Jesus is talking to a Jewish religious scholar, right? And in that day, the Judaism of Jesus' day, as D.A. Carson says, circulated many stories of bygone saints 
who had ascended into heaven and received special insight into God's ways and plans. And many of these stories focused on Moses. But Jesus insists that no one has ascended to heaven in such a way as to return to talk about heavenly things. Only in heaven can true wisdom be found. But Jesus' point is, uh, that's the end of what D.A. Carson says, Jesus' point is, no one on earth has penetrated heaven's mysteries. You need the one who's come down from heaven. It's me. Without me, you don't have a clue. As he says later in John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he also, he, he talks like uh, Proverbs 30 talks. A man named Agur wrote Proverbs 30. Verses 2 through 6, this man named Agur is, is humbly expressing his ignorance before God. Admitting, yeah, yes, God, I know almost nothing before you. But here's what he says. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? That is, who's like God to know the things of God? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know, speaking to his fellow arrogant humans. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. But it's that, it's that language Jesus echoes. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? He says, no one's ascended to heaven. No man can tell you heavenly things, but the son of man, because he came from heaven. That's his point. Again, D.A. Carson. Nicodemus had approached Jesus with a certain amount of respect, verse 2. But he had not even begun to appreciate who Jesus really was. At bottom, Nicodemus' failure was not a failure of intellect, but a failure to believe Jesus witnessed. You people do not accept our testimony. The failure to believe was more reprehensible, it was worse, than the failure to understand since it betrayed a fundamentally inadequate appreciation of who Jesus is. So, first of all, if you're going to believe who Jesus said he was, you have to believe in Jesus as the Son of Man from heaven. He's truly a man, but truly God. He's come down to us as the truth that we need from God. Second, verses 14 through 15, believe in Jesus as the Savior from our curse. Believe in Jesus as the Savior from our curse. Now Jesus brings in suddenly this story about Moses. Of course, the Jewish teachers love to talk about Moses and how great he was, right? So Jesus brings in Moses from Numbers chapter 21. Verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Let me read, it's not a long text, let me read the story Jesus is talking about. Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. From Mount Hor, they, the people of Israel, set out by way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. They're not in the Promised Land yet. They're uh, toward the end of their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. 
Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food, (laughs) the manna. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, venomous, that is, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Normally, what would happen if people in Israel sinned against God? We were just reading about it, weren't we? You'd bring a sacrifice. Atonement had to happen, right? If you had sinned against God and you wanted to have his favor back, not to be under his judgment, you would, uh, there would be an atonement pictured there. But this was a little different situation. People were dying on the spot from poisonous serpent bites. Also very interesting, God chose this method to reinforce their sin and the death it brought. Who seduced our race into sin and death? The serpent, right? Interesting, God should make that choice of how this happened. But in this situation, God doesn't tell them, bring a sacrifice and go go through that whole process. And if you die in the process, oh well. He simply tells Moses... Make a bronze image of one of these venomous snakes. Put it up on a a pole so everyone can see it. And when they're bitten, all they have to do is look at that, fix their gaze on that bronze serpent, and they'll live. I'll heal them. Look and live. That's it. Faith. Repentant faith. That's what God requires. But a picture. And so is it any wonder Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Herman Ritterboss says, what Moses did at God's instruction in the wilderness, lift up the serpent, was great and marvelous. But nowhere more clearly than here do we see the difference between what God gave through Moses and the grace and truth that came through Jesus Christ. This Greek word for lifted up, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, it's used in the Greek Old Testament of how God would exalt his servant, the Messiah, through the suffering of substitutionary atonement. Isaiah 52, verse 13, introducing Isaiah 53, the Lord says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high, and and here it is, lifted up, and shall be exalted. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, I'm sorry, I I skipped. Um, This is from later, the next chapter, but the same section, chapter 53, verse 10. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. 
Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. So he will be lifted up in the sense of exalted, but how will he be lifted up? Because he went to the cross. Because he gave himself in the place of sinners. This word is further used by Jesus himself, as John records it, two other places, basically. It's interesting, John, John likes these double meanings, where he means two things at the same time with, by a word. He, likes, he quotes Jesus as saying that he was to be lifted up. On the one hand, God was going to exalt him as Lord in Christ. On the other hand, the lifting up was lifting up on a cross. For his people's sins. John eight twenty eight. Jesus said to them. To the Jewish people who would later kill him. To the Jewish leadership. Jesus said to them. When you have lifted up the son of man. Then you will know that I am he. And that I do nothing on my own authority. But speak just as the father taught me. That is through the cross. Even they would be brought to say that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then John 12. I'll read a little more here. Um, John 12, starting verse 23, Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Skipping down to verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. That's the Apostle John writing that. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Apparently the crowd even understood lifting up as being lifted up in death. Again, there's there's the double emphasis. Lifting up can mean exaltation, but it also refers to the cross. Being lifted up on a wooden cross. So, having said all that, In what he said to Nicodemus, Jesus prophesied his death as being lifted up like a serpent, or like the serpent, (laughs) like that symbol of temptation and sin and death. Just like that was lifted up on a pole for everyone to see, he would be lifted up in death. That everyone who believes in him would have eternal life. As I mentioned before, Nicodemus was afraid to openly declare his allegiance to Jesus, even after his conversation with him in John chapter 3. He timidly said something halfway in Jesus' defense at one point, and he got slapped down for it. He never really fully declared himself to be Jesus' disciple, though, until the day Jesus was lifted up on a cross. And Nicodemus got it, apparently. Nicodemus finally declared his allegiance to this condemned Jesus 
when he was lit, the very day when Jesus was lifted up on a cross like a cursed sinner. Nicodemus helped Joseph of Arimathea prepare Jesus' body for burial. He spent a lot of money on it. And everyone could see who was taking the body and who was preparing it. It's these two people from the Sanhedrin. But now they're willing to say they're his disciples. That's in John 19. You can go there in your own time. Verses 38 through 40. But when Jesus was lifted up to die on the cross, it was his moment of triumph. Because he became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. As we read this morning, therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name above every name. Leon Morris puts it this way, the cross of shame is the throne of glory in John's gospel. The cross of shame is the throne of glory. There's a third thing we have to believe, if we get to believe what Jesus said about himself, verses 16 through 17. Believe in Jesus as the gift of God's love. The gift of God's love. For God so loved the world. This term for the world, cosmos, that usually in Scripture emphasizes that the world is evil. Usually emphasizes the world as fallen and rebellious against God. We're even told in 1 John by the same author not to love the world, the cosmos, because it's directly opposed to God. But God loved this world, that dark, this dark, evil world. He loved it in a different sense than we're to not love it. D.A. Carson says, Christians are not to love the world with the selfish love of participation. God loves the world with the selfless, costly love of redemption. It's a good way to put it. It says, God so loved the world. In this manner, in this way, and to this extent. <laughs> that he gave none other than his only begotten son. The best he had to give. In fact, no one before the mystery of the gospel was made plain. None of us could have conceived how God could even possibly give his son like this. How would that work? But this was God's plan from all eternity. And again, you know, John loves to um, give words or quote Jesus as using words in two, with two ideas sort of at the same time. It says God gave his only son. He gave him by sending him into this world. By the incarnation, he also gave him in the sense of handing him over to death. Both things are kind of tied up here. He came, he humbled himself, I think Philippians 2. Jesus was sent into this world as a man. Who could imagine that? He humbled himself to that extent, but he kept humbling himself till he died on a cross. He was delivered over to death. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. The son was not, Jesus was not 
incarnated. Jesus, uh, the Son of God, I should say, did not become the man Jesus simply to, to come in judgment, to come with the wrath of God. He came in grace for a positive reason, that the world might be saved through him, John says. By the way, I forgot to mention, um, there's disagreement. A lot of people think that Jesus' quotation, the quotation of Jesus ends maybe verse 15, and that maybe this is just the Apostle John giving his commentary. On the other hand, the ESV presents it as still being Jesus talking. I'm not sure exactly which one it is. In either case, it's the truth, whether it's John saying it or Jesus saying it. I, I kind of lean toward Jesus still talking here, actually, but I, I won't die on that hill. But did you notice something here? Again, Jesus loves to echo other scripture. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The sacrifice of an only son is a familiar image from the Old Testament, Genesis 22. Abraham offering Isaac, right? Uh, the wording is that way there where God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go make him a burnt offering. Offer him as a burnt offering in the land of Moriah, on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And Abraham, we, we've preached on that whole section, so I'm not going to do it now, but Abraham goes all the way to the point of lifting the knife to slay his son on the altar, and God stops him. And God says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And there's, uh, I won't keep reading. There, the Lord repeats. You offered your son, your only son. And uh, I'm not going into the debate today. Uh, there's, there's a word which uh, the King James, the New King James would translate God's only begotten son, monogenes. <laughs> um, uh, some, some say that just means his unique son, his one son in some sense. Uh, there's there's debate about whether it should be translated begotten or just his only son. Um, I'm not going to that, that debate right now, but my point in bringing that up is the same word monogenes, monogene in this here is used of Abraham and Isaac in, in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11:17 By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was was in the act of offering up his only son, his monogene. Same word used of God in John 3 here. He was in the act of offering up, you could say, his only begotten son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. But notice, notice the one contrast with Abraham's son Isaac. Jesus says God did what Abraham pictured. God gave his only son. But there's one difference. John's gospel has already recorded what John the Baptist said about Jesus. 
John the Baptist declared there would be no sacrificial substitute for Jesus because Jesus was the sacrificial substitute for his people. John 1.29, he said of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Abraham, for sake of time, I didn't read it all. Abraham had told his son Isaac, God will provide for himself a lamb for the sacrifice. When God gives his son, he actually takes the knife and slays his own son. There is no other lamb, no ram caught in the thicket. Jesus is the lamb. God gave us the picture of Abraham and Isaac on purpose to understand in our finite way. God has loved, well, we speak in temporal terms because we're time-bound creatures. God has loved his son from before the worlds began. He will always love his son. He loves no one better than his son. And it's his only son. We're adopted sons of God, but this is God's only begotten son. And it's that one, not because God did not love his son, but because he loved the world also in his amazing grace. It's his only begotten son that he gave. That whoever would believe in his son would not perish, as they would deserve to do because of their sins, but would have eternal life. And and John also says something might sound strange, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, for judging the world. But then elsewhere in the same gospel, Jesus says, for judgment, I have come into this world. So which is it? The point is, again, there's a paradox here. Salvation necessarily implies judgment. God sends his son to save sinners. But especially when sinners are confronted with his son and they reject him, they judge themselves in a sense. They condemn themselves. So we've worked through verses uh, 11 through 17 that you must believe what Jesus says about himself. Second, verses 18 through 21, this will be quicker. You must believe in Jesus to be saved from truthful condemnation. That is, if you don't believe in Jesus, we could say, you'll be condemned simply by the truth about you. You've rejected the best thing in the world, God's gift of his only son. So you must believe in Jesus to be saved from truthful condemnation. God does not delight in the death of the wicked, as he says elsewhere, but that the wicked turn from his evil way and repent and live. But you deserve your guilt all the more if you reject that love. To believe in God's Son is to escape your condemnation. That's the good news, beginning of verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. It doesn't say whoever believes in him and then fixes himself turns his life around, makes all the right choices, impresses God, then he's not condemned. It just says whoever believes in him is not condemned. Salvation from God's wrath by God's grace alone through faith alone. Same doctrine Paul teaches, right? 
Whoever believes in him simply is not condemned. (laughs) Like Jesus says in John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has, present tense, now, has as his possession eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Or John 6.40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him Sound familiar? Looking at the bronze serpent. Whoever looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So, to believe in God's Son is to escape your condemnation, which you deserve. You look to Jesus knowing you deserve condemnation. God's justice, because you're a sinner. You've broken God's law. Not just you have, you do break God's law. You are a sinner. That's who you are until you come to Christ. But knowing you are justly condemned without Jesus, you come to Jesus, you look to him in faith, and you, your condemnation is taken away. But on the other hand, the rest of verse 18, to refuse belief in God's only Son is to seal your condemnation. Whoever believes... In him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Later in the same chapter, verses 31 through 36, again it says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. That is, God has given his Holy Spirit beyond measure, unlimited, in unlimited quantity to his Son. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You hear echoes of Hebrews, how much richer, um, how much severer punishment does the person deserve who tramples underfoot the Son of God? (laughs) Verses 19 through 20, to refuse God's light is to love evil deeds. This is the judgment. This, This is why this is so. This is how this works. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. So here's where I know most here um, are professing Christians and I, I trust that profession. I'm glad you're my brothers and sisters in Christ. But we need to ask ourselves if perhaps we're not believers and we need to ask others what lofty rationalizations and excuses have you come up with to ignore Jesus' claims on you? It doesn't matter who you're talking about. If someone stubbornly resists Jesus Christ, their real objections are not so much intellectual as moral. The reason they don't want Jesus, yes, they make him up with intellectual problems as they want to portray them. 
How can I honestly believe that intellectually? But the real problem is they don't like the light. They're in darkness and they know the light is going to show how bad they are in their darkness. Their deeds are evil, Jesus says. That's why they will not come to the light. Lest their works be exposed. What might a person... um, what might a person fear that the light and truth of Jesus will expose in their life? Could be lots of things. But at bottom, it's all the same. No matter what our sins of choice are, it, it always boils down to this. We don't want God to be in charge of us. We want to be sinners. We want to do things our way, be a law to ourselves. And we want to, at the same time, think of ourselves as good people. But if we look Jesus in the face, we have to come to grips with the fact that we are not good people. That's why people don't naturally come to Jesus on their own. Unless God changes their hearts. But, verse 21, to come to God's light is to glorify God's grace. To come to God's light is to glorify God's grace. Verse 21, but whoever does what is true, or literally does the truth, (laughs) whoever does the truth comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Leon Morris says here, John does not, of course, mean that some people by nature do what is right. He is not teaching salvation by works or by nature. In this very chapter, he has reported the words of Jesus that emphasize that not good works, but rebirth is the way to God. The person John has in mind here is the one who responds to the gospel invitation, the one who has life in Christ, verse 15. It is only the person on whom God has laid his hand who can truly say that his works are wrought, done in God, and that person will not avoid the light. That's what John is saying. If someone does come to the light, it's because God has given them a new nature. They've been born again, and they're not afraid of the light anymore. They come to the light to show God has done this in my life. <laughs> my works are, are carried out in God. Like we recently preached from Ephesians 2, 8-10, through 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now we can rejoice in the light and be happy about it. Yeah, I'm a sinner, but look what God has done in my life. I want him to show it. I want people to see it. And I want people to see Jesus. So Jesus is God's son come down from heaven in whom we must believe. Close with that text we often look at around Christmas, Isaiah 9, verse 2, and then verses 6 through 7. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Jesus is God's Son come down from heaven in whom we must believe and then we will have light. 
Let's pray together. Thank you for the gospel, the good news of great joy, Lord God. Thank you that, Lord Jesus, you gladly, joyfully, without ceasing to be God, you came down from heaven in a sense because you became a man. You took to yourself a human nature, not just in some vague spiritual way, but You were born into our race. You're one of us now. And you came to die for sinners to be lifted up so that whoever believes in you will have not just life that lasts forever, but eternal life that is life indeed because it's life reconciled to God. Help us to be, to not lose our enthusiasm about this and our appreciation for it. Don't let us be bashful about this truth as we are around those, perhaps even this Christmas season, who don't accept that truth. Help us to be happy to share the light of Christ. And may we not forget that we were in darkness and he brought us light. We pray this in his name. Amen.